Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Bring, bring it fast. Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi everyone, I'm Jamie Smith, here to talk about Burnley. You can follow me on Twitter at Jamie Smith Sport. Hi guys, I'm Goss. Uh, I'm here to talk about Man United. I'm a freelance football writer. You can find me on Twitter at Goss underscore Pandey 17. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today, guys. Uh, this episode is going to be a little bit of a recap as we wind down 2019. Of course, midweek, we passed Match Week 19, which, of course, is the halfway point of the season. So I just kind of wanted to address some of the battles going on in the Premier League and see where you thought they would fall. Before we press record, Jamie kind of joked about this initial one, but we'll start with at the halfway point, who do you feel is most likely to finish as champions? Well, this is a tough one. <laughs> Actually, about a month ago, I had a funny feeling for Leicester. I just felt like they had so much momentum. And obviously, Leicester haven't won the league in so long. I felt like the pressure could get to them. They had a lead last season and got hauled in by Man City. However, (laughs) the last couple of weeks have made that opinion look a little bit silly. Um, Leicester in those defeats to Man City and Liverpool just looked like a really big gap between them and the other two. Uh, and Liverpool just keep winning every game, don't they? So it's, it's very difficult to see how how Liverpool don't win it. You'd think it'd have to be massive injury crisis, something huge going wrong at the club, really. Um, it'd probably be Newcastle that year when they lost the title, that sort of collapse. That's the only way that Liverpool can't be champions now, I think. I think... It's obviously Liverpool, not Burnley, like Jamie might just say. <laughs> but, but I think it's also down. I think one the biggest reason is that the other teams are not up to the mark. If if City were at their best, at their unreal best, if I might, may put that way, as good as they were last season, I think they would have been up about just about there. But this season has not been the same. And I think uh, people may go on about how the VAR favours Liverpool and all that. I think that's pretty much nonsense. Because every season a team wins the Premier League, they, they always have some luck to thank. Because the period of Man United domination, there was uh, there was accusations that United bought referees and all that. There was, again, those nonsense uh, saying. But uh, it's always that the champion team champion teams always have this sort of luck that always goes their way and they've got individual performances that pretty much what Trent Alexander-Arnold did against Leicester and they're almost like a machine in themselves because they I think and I I've got this strange feeling that they might just 
be the invincibles once again and i'm i'll be pretty glad if they do that and shut some arsenal fans up because they're a really <laughs> noisy bunch and i think leicester will drop more points and i think city will finish second and leicester will probably just fade away and finish third so i think yeah there's no question that it's probably liverpool all right, well, Kaj just kind of ran through the rest of the top four, and as long as, except for that last spot, which we'll come back to. Uh, Jamie, who do you think will secure all those Champions League spots? Yeah, I think Liverpool and City's probably given. Um, Leicester, it's theirs to lose, really. Um, I think it was a good win for them at West Ham yesterday, a couple of days ago, when they rested so many players to show that they still had that squad strength. Um, and to come back from the couple of bad defeats that I've had recently, I think that was really important. So if they can stay on track, it's very difficult to see them missing out. Then I think it's really interesting the race for the fourth, um, and at least there will be a race within the season, I suppose, because Chelsea is so inconsistent at the moment. They seem to be really good one game and then terrible the next. Absolutely no idea how they managed to beat Arsenal today. It was an incredible comeback. Arsenal totally shot themselves in the foot as normal um, Man United seems to be becoming more consistent the win at Burnley was the sort of game that recently they've been dropping points in they've not been getting it done the young players haven't been turning up maybe as much for those matches but they seem to be finding some rhythm um, but I'm going to go for Spurs actually they've cut the gap so much since Mourinho came in I think his focus will be on finishing in the top four above everything else. And he's got so much to prove now after failing at Man United. Second spell at Chelsea wasn't the success that it was supposed to be. So I, I've got a feeling that Mourinho and Spurs can get that done. I think Man City will be in top four. That's pretty obvious. But I somehow have doubts about Leicester, even though I think they'll get it. I think they'll finish third. And... They've not been at their flying best in recent games that draw against Norwich and losses to City and Liverpool. And that could be a sign of fatigue. And also that uh, Brennan Rodgers, I think, rotated his squad in the in the, in the recent game. That they played guys like Christian Fuchs, uh, Hamza Chaudhry and all these guys with James Madison dropping out. Uh, there was a lot of rotation that went on in there. It shows that there is some fatigue in the side that Ben Rodgers clearly wants to address. And... That's that's Leicester for third. I think Chelsea will struggle a lot, depending on. But a lot of the, a lot will depend on sort of business they do in January. Because if they get a top centre back and top left back, they will clearly increase the chances of getting top four. Even though they're pretty inconsistent, and then they seem to lose games that they should win, especially at home. Uh, I think Tottenham, if they do business. Uh, in January, which I don't think they will, because I think Jose Mourinho has been clear that he may, he is very unlikely to make signings in in January because they don't really have a reliable uh, right back. Sir Jordier is a walking error, and they don't really have proper left back as well because even though Ben Davis is fine and Danny Rose isn't good enough, and that's probably why Jose is sticking to playing Ryan Sasson Young in recent games. They lack in those fullback areas. They need a, a defender as well. And they lack that depth in midfield. I mean, they get overrun in midfield a lot of times. And if they don't really do business in January, I think they, they might just finish fifth and Chelsea will get the, get the fourth place. And 
it's been reported pretty widely that Chelsea will make signings in in January. With players like Nathan Nathanake and all these uh, players being linked to them. If they make these sort of signings, I think even though they will be inconsistent, Spurs have shown that uh, they don't really know Jose's system completely yet because. If you if we see the games they played against United and Chelsea, it it was clear that they don't really know their shape yet because they play the uh, back four uh, out of possession, but then in possession they switch their formation and that's not their, their something that they were used to under Pochettino, and that's one aspect that will only develop as the season wears on. And but next season they'll be much better. So that's one big reason why I see Chelsea getting both ahead of Spurs. I liked Jamie's better personally, but <laughs> both very well reasoned, <laughs> of course. Uh, next up, we'll talk about some of those Europa League spots. Uh, it would be easy for some people to assume that the big clubs that fall outside of that top four will get those top six, but there have been a lot of teams challenging up there. As we've discussed, Leicester are already up there. Wolves and Sheffield United have been up at the top of the table for the majority of the first half of the season. Who do you think will snag those last European spots? Yeah, I think it's right to say that it, it will depend on, on January, sort of who misses out on the top four and who falls away. Um, so I think Chelsea, if they miss out on the top four, I think they'll be in the, the Europa League. They might spend heavily in Chelsea in January. It's no guarantee of success, though, is it? They've had all these young players who've done so well, though they have been inconsistent. They're then going to sign players and the young players don't play anymore. Frank Lampard's going to have to knit all that together. Um, and they've been so poor at the back in some games, it's, it's difficult to see how they can be top four. So, uh, for me, if I'm saying Spurs are going to be in the top four, then Chelsea, Man United, probably fifth and sixth. I don't think any of the chasing pack are quite ready to breach that gap. Um, I'm not sure it's a a big six, even if you swap out Leicester for Arsenal. Now I think teams like Wolves are very close to that now, but I don't see it being this year that they can push on. Obviously, they've got the Europa League to think about still. Um, An extra round of games on top of the, the Champions League matches that teams around them are playing. So I think it's going to be still difficult for Wolves over the second half of the season to stay consistent in the Premier League, play the best team all the time. So I think maybe next year they can have a real crack at breaking the top six. But for me, it's going to be Chelsea, United, Spurs fighting for fourth. Whoever misses out gets fifth and sixth. And then probably Wolves in seventh after that. I think it's quite the same for me by the fact that Spurs will uh, finish and then United because uh, all again, sort of struggle against the left side. The draw against Brighton showed that. And even though they somehow turn up against the bigger side because they are better off without the ball than with the ball. And that's... I I think many people are still saying that United do have a chance for top four, but I don't think that's the case because they can't really break down low blocks. And even though Pogba is back and he was good against Watford, but lack of consistency has been a problem for them. And so when it comes to Sheffield United, I think they're a good side, but and, and I think they're very flexible in terms of how they play. They can either play some good attacking football and then draw back and defend and with their overlapping centre-backs. That system is very new and it's very innovative and something, it's something that no one's really has seen before. But 
I think th- there's a lack of depth in that side because a lot of times they've been using quite the same side, especially the midfield, even though they've got depth in the front line. They've got about four, stri- four striking options in there. But it's the midfield that concerns me because they, on a consistent basis, they're, they're playing the same players just about every week. And this period will be crucial for them because they lost today and they had to rotate some players. Mo Besic came in. And that's probably the reason why I think they're going to miss out on the Europa League. But uh, they're, again, a work in progress. And next season, they'll be closer than they are this season. It'll be certainly tight at the top there. It sounds like neither of you really think one of those trailing pack will get into those Europa League spots, but who do you think will finish highest amongst them? Yeah, so I think Wolves, for me, obviously it's very close, and Sheffield United have had an amazing first half of the season, but I suspect the the sort of innovative tactics teams will surely work out to counter that over the second half of the season. I think fatigue will probably be an issue for them as well, so... Oh, they've been incredible. I think if they can finish in the top half, that would be successful for them. Um, maybe look at, at Everton as maybe a dark horse. They've obviously been very good over the last few matches. couple of wins straight away under Carlo Ancelotti. Duncan Ferguson really steadied that ship. Um, but they've got a few points to make up on, on Wolves and the teams above. So they need to have a really good run. I think they'll probably spend in January. So it depends how those signings work out. Um, but I think Wolves are the strongest team outside the, the top six. They did it last year. They've got the experience of knowing how to do it. They've got elite performers in some positions. Players like Raul Jimenez could play for a top four team, probably. Um, Ruben Neves, Jaume Tino. These are elite players who, when the pressure gets on in the last stages of the season, they'll get the job done, I think. They've only lost four games this season. That's the same as Leicester. So while you can argue they've drawn too many, it shows that they are extremely hard to beat. Um, and I think while the project around Wolves is maybe a bit controversial with the way they've made the signings and they've spent quite a lot of money for a, a newly promoted team, I think Nuno Espirito Santos has done an absolutely fantastic job. I don't really understand why he wasn't more closely linked with the Arsenal job when that came up. Um, so yeah Wolves for me will be best of the rest again this season and really well positioned to kick on and try and get top six next season yeah I think I'll agree with Jamie when he says that Wolves will get there but I think people are really sort of underestimating what Everton are now under Carlo Ancelotti I'm not saying that because I'm a huge Carlo Ancelotti fanboy but because I think they really sort of now have the foundation to to help Ancelotti take this team on because what Carlo Ancelotti usually does is that when he comes into the side, he usually uses the the formation and the style that the previous manager was using. And he's just taken that style forward from Duncan Ferguson because he used to play that 4-4-2 system with a little bit pragmatic approach. That's what he's done in the last two games, and they've managed to grind out results. And they are about tenth in the league, if I'm not wrong. And I think the next two or three games will be huge for them. If they pick up about two wins, they'll be right in the mix. And there's no there's no doubt that they can do that because they have the players. Even though their attack is a bit over reliant on Dom Cavalier, I think they do have the quality in there because. 
there's there's players in there who are slowly coming back from injuries, and I think it will be a nice, a very interesting battle in that position. And I think uh, Sheffield United will probably just fall off to finish maybe ninth or around that, which again is a very respectable position for them. And I think in the end, Wolves will get it, but Everton probably be challenging for them. Yeah, that'll certainly be interesting. As as you guys mentioned, there are a lot of teams that'll be battling for those uh, spots outside the top six, and it'll be interesting to see where it lands. Uh, at the other end of the table, uh, we talked either last week or the week before about Watford basically being a bygone conclusion, and who would the other two teams be? But you look up, and they've lost just one of their last five. Do you think they have any chance of staying up, and what other teams do you think uh, could find themselves in the relegation spots come the end of the year? They've definitely got a chance. I mean... Nigel Pearson seems to have turned it around very quickly there. They've got Troy Deeney fit and firing again. I, I felt a bit sorry for Javi Gracia and to a, to a lesser extent Kike Sanchez Flores because Watford saw in on Deeney and he wasn't fit. It's no surprise that they struggled when Deeney wasn't fit because he's the heartbeat of that team. And as soon as Deeney's got fit, they started scoring goals and winning games. It's, it's not a surprise to me. Um it's mainly the same Watford team that have done quite well the last few seasons as well. So I can certainly see them putting results together. Um, Person seems to be sort of short-term fix. So whether he can keep it going for long enough to keep it up is maybe the question. And if Deeney got injured again, then I think it is finished for them. Um, I think it's going to be very hard for, for Norwich to get out of it now. They're, what, six points adrift at this stage? They don't look like they've got enough to win games. Pookie's a very good striker, but defensively they seem really weak. They can see far too many goals. Um, so for, it's hard for me to look beyond the three that are down there at the minute, to be honest. I think I think West Ham will get out of it. Obviously, it depends who they appoint. There's a lot of talk about Moyes coming back and people mocking that, but Moyes did a really good job at West Ham last time. They were in similar trouble and he got them out of trouble quite easily, even though it was a really poisonous and toxic atmosphere at that club at that time, they got out of trouble quite easily under Moyes. So if he goes back there, I think they'll be okay. Bournemouth have had a, a bad run of late, but I think it'll come together for them. A lot of people seem to have decided Eddie Howe's crap forgetting about where that club has come from in two spells under him. Over the last decade, I don't think anyone has risen as high as quickly as Bournemouth and that's basically down to one man Eddie Howe they lose three games and everyone decides he's crap it's utterly ridiculous um, so I think they'll turn a corner Southampton have turned that corner after the 9-0 against Leicester everyone thought that they were gone then they're stuck with Ralph Hasenhutl which I was surprised by I think if you lose 9-0 you can expect to get the sack um, but look at them recently they've got a player like Manny Ings who can't stop scoring at the minute so yeah, I think it's it's all to play for and it might go down to the wire, but I think I'm sticking with the, the three that are down there. Villa, obviously we play them on New Year's Day. That's a really big game for both clubs at the minute, but I think if we can win that one, Villa's still really down in trouble. I've just got... I'm more positive about everyone else down there other than the current bottom three, so Watford have got the best chance of getting out of it, but if I had to predict now, and with the caveat that it does depend on what teams do in January. I think the three that are there at the minute, they could be the three to go. Yeah, I think Norwich are going down, even though they 
do play lovely football sometimes, but that just leaves them exposed at the back. They overplay and teams just sort of press high up the pitch and make the ball off them. They do get some good results here and there, like how they uh, got a draw against Spurs and beat uh, Man City and then drew against Everton. But that's, that's those results here and there are never really good enough for survival in the Premier League. They need that constant run of wins to survive. And I don't think they're tactically flexible enough to do that because they just stick on to that style of playing good football under Daniel Parker and that that probably will get them back in the championship. And I think the, the, the two other spots remain the same for me as well because Watford have sort of done well again under Nigel Pearson. But if I look at that back line, and I don't think that's Premier League quality, even though Ardini has done very well since uh, Pearson has come back and they are pretty much reliant on Gerard Delefeu as well sometimes because he's when he plays well and Dini does well, Watford pick up points. But at the back, I don't think they are promising enough, at least for me, to say that they are Premier League quality. But Nigel Pearson has done well and uh, he is just the sort of manager who plays a little more pragmatic brand of football and gets so the, the probably the baddest defense in the Premier League to safety. But as Jamie just pointed out, that the other teams clearly have a better chance of them looking at purely looking at the back lines that they have. And when it comes to Villa, I think Dean Smith will probably be gone soon. I've never seen them to be this bad as this bad as I mean as back as they were under Remy Gard or maybe Tim Sherwood back in the Period around 2014 or 15, and I think when a new manager will come in there, he'll look at this at this side and probably just go scratching his head. The signings they've made are probably uh, a lot for any manager to combine into the same side, and there's a lack of identity in that side as well because of the last seven eight games uh, they they've lost that uh, ability to play good football and they just can't gel together. And the new manager will look at that and there'll be huge problems for them, especially because there's probably just a, a little more than half a season left for him whenever he comes in. There'll be a case of too many cooks spoiling the boot. And I think, and also John McGinn's out injured and, then, and I think that's a huge blow for them. Yeah, all those teams probably have reason for concern. I, I, I totally agree with that. Uh... Jamie's point about Hasenhutl not being left to go after that 9-0, but I think they recognize that he was probably one of the few people not to blame, <laughs> that the talent in the squad was a little bit lacking there, but they stick with him, agree with you guys on most of the rest. All right, uh, now we'll continue our kind of review of the year uh, by asking you guys, what was your team's best performance in the first half of the season? Yes, it's been a strange first start of the season for us, really, because we've had some really bad performances. But there was nothing really standing out for me as a really good performance, even though we've won a few games 3-0, which we never seem to do. All our wins tended to be like by the odd goal. So I think the one I've gone for is the West Ham game. Um, a lot of these results that we've picked up seem to be against teams that were like in crisis at that time, and West Ham was certainly in crisis. It's a perfect time to play them. Um, but we won comfortably, and it's always been a challenge for us to do that. Our wins always seem to be scratchy, they go down to the wire, we're always hanging on, but to be 3-0 up and cruising, 
and be able to just sort of take your foot off the gas and enjoy a game for once was really enjoyable. I feel like we set up to combat their defensive weaknesses really well. They didn't play with the goalkeeper. They had some guy called Roberto who I think they just pulled out the crowd. Um, so that really helped. He didn't have a clue what he was doing. <laughs> so, yeah, it was just so rare to be sure with like half an hour to go we were definitely going to win the game. Um, so probably that one for me, although winning 3-0 away at Watford, also very good result. Watford were terrible at the time. But if you win any game 3-0 away from home in the Premier League, I think that's certainly worth a mention. Yeah, I think for me, I, I don't think it should be a doubt, even though our record against the top six has been pretty much fantastic this season. But it has to be the Man City game when we beat them 2-1, because it was probably the most perfect performance we've had probably in this year. Every player was fantastic. And even though Luke, even Luke Shaw, who's often criticised for being pretty poor defensively, he was pretty good in that game. He made two really good tackles. And Jesse Lingard looked like his old self. And that helped the attack immensely. Aaron Van Bissaka was unreal as always. playing And playing on the break just suited us as, as it has throughout the season at just played the game into our hands and it's probably been the story of the season. The front line is devastating against the opposition defences. It takes, just takes one ball from the midfield to set them through and I know that City have not been the best defensively due to Laporte's injury and that helped us massively and who cares that if, if they had a centre-back injured and because we don't really have a top defensive midfielder this season and so playing our central midfielders deeper helped our backline as well because there's there's a perception that Harry Maguire and Victor Lindelof haven't been as good as they should be this season. But uh, playing as deep as we did against City helped them because they had defensive support in front of them. Not having that often leaves them exposed. And that's why it was probably the best game we've had this season. Probably it's one game that will go down in my memory for... The next few years as well. Gotcha. That, that did seem a surprising win at the time, but obviously a very good one, as you say. Uh, and then we'll finish with, who do you think was the best player in the Premier League in 2019? And if you want to risk diving into potentially hot waters, who do you think was the best of the decade? Yeah, so I've thought about a few different players here. Obviously, Virgil van Dijk has been transformational for Liverpool. I think if you look a couple of years ago, the big difference is that the solid at the back, he's made all that difference. Thought about Raheem Sterling, who's been very consistent. He's learned how to finish, although maybe not take penalties. Um, and that was the one thing lacking from his game. Really consistent goal scorer for club and country now. I think he's had a really big year. He's also had to deal with all the nonsense racism off the field stuff and become a real spokesman against that. So I thought about Raheem Sterling a lot as well. Kevin De Bruyne on his day is just unstoppable. But the player I want to talk about is Jamie Vardy, who continues to sort of go under the radar. And despite the fact he consistently scores so many goals, he's a long way clear at the top of the scoring charts to this season. Since Brendan Rodgers came in at Leicester, he's been pretty much unstoppable. I was counting him up earlier, and I thought, I think 29 Premier League goals in 2019. Um, and for a guy who's going to turn 33 in January, I think people just sort of forget 
how consistent Jamie Vardy's been, not just this year, but throughout his career. He's he's really up there all the time. Um, unless they're, like they're going to get back in the Champions League. So for a club like Leicester to be finishing the Champions League places two years out of what's going to be four, five, massively reliant on Jamie Vardy. I think he's a huge talent. Um and teams don't seem to still be able to stop him. You saw the, the Leicester-Man City game. They just scored a typical Jamie Vardy goal, but City had no idea how to stop him. And he just ran in a straight line onto a through goal and then finished. So I think he's he, he deserves a mention. Um, not playing for England has been a, a real boost for him. He's got the international breaks to recover, but it will be interesting to see if they try and talk him around for Euro 2020. I think he packed it in because he just didn't want to be on the bench all the time and going to Macedonia or Romania or wherever during the qualifiers and just sitting on the bench while Harry Kane played. But I think a home tournament almost effectively with a lot of the games being at Wembley, I think he might be tempted to come out of international retirement for that. Um, and in terms of over the decade, I think there was a lot of sort of teams of the decade that were going around recently. I couldn't understand why Fardy wasn't under consideration for that. For me, Leicester winning the title is the biggest achievement in football, if not all sports, ever. And it was Vardy's goals that did it. People were putting players like Kane in there, who hasn't won anything yet. It's, it, it was bizarre for me that Vardy seemed to be underrated there. But the player of the decade for me in the Premier League has been David Silva. Again, a player who almost underrated despite being widely acknowledged to be brilliant if that makes sense no one ever thought of him as being sort of a world-class elite player one of the best in the world but for the last decade if you talk about the best midfielders in the Premier League he's probably been in the top three until the last few months when he's faded away I think City's problems this season obviously they've had the problems in defence with Laporte being injured but a massive factor for me that people haven't really talked about is the fact that Silver's form has just fallen off a cliff. You can see that he's getting old. It's his last season at the club and his legs have just gone a bit now. I think that City team that have been so good for the last two years, yes, it was Kevin De Bruyne. Yes, it was Sergio Aguero scoring the goals. Yes, it was company at the back. But Silver was always kind of the heartbeat. He knitted it all together. Without David Silver doing that now, City just aren't Man City anymore. So I think if you were doing a team of the decade, Silva would certainly be in the midfield. And in terms of an individual, he's been probably the most important player overall for the best team of the decade, which for me is Man City easily. I think David Silva's the man. I think the player of the year has got to be Van Dijk, but I think uh, Sadio Mane a rather huge mention because I think he's been involved in about 40 or 42 goals this year. I mean, in ter- uh, combining the goals and assists together and he's obviously won the Champions League and they've they've won the FIFA Club World Cup. But it's also about the way he carries himself because we always sort of give special recognition to Virgil van Dijk and even someone like Mo Salah and Fabinho. But Mane is never the sort of player who seeks that much attention in terms of how he carries himself. Despite scoring so many goals, he's never someone who's ever marketed himself in a manner that he's the best player in the world. And I think even Lionel Messi said that 
gave said that he's been the best uh, player this season. He gave uh, Ballon d'Or votes to Mane himself. And when Messi says that, you should know that uh, this guy's been one of the best players in the world of the last two years, not just this year. And the way Liverpool play suits him. I mean, Roberto Firmino dropping deeper and him almost playing as a split striker. And I don't really know the reason why he's often overlooked when we say that when we talk about the best players in the world. And, and the reason for that is probably that uh, he's never really too open in interviews. He hardly gives them. I've never seen an interview of him in the media. I've never seen him uh, get written about as much as maybe Mo Salah or Virgil van Dijk. But he just goes about his job silently keeps doing the job for the team, gives Salah the assist he needs and often helps out defensively as well. And when it comes to player of, uh, player of the decade, I think that's pretty difficult as, because I don't really like to make comparisons. But I think for me, it's got to be N'Golo Kante. Even though I just respect the others who might just be right up there, I think Kante just came into Leicester and no one really knew him. As Jamie just pointed out, that Wadi was scoring goals. But I think Kante was the one who just gelled the side together. In that 4 4 2 formation, he was the one who won the ball back, carried it forward, and often scored. I think he scored just two goals that season. But the way he took the ball forward and dribbled it past people and circulated, and for, circulated it forward was something that <clears throat> the Premier League had not seen after guys like Patrick Vieira or Claude Makelele. And that's something very unique still. I mean, in the modern day, we don't really have midfielders that are as good as Kante himself, even though Casemiro is a player who's very similar to him. And that's something that pretty much goes under the radar. He's won two Premier League titles. And if not for him, I think Chelsea may not have won the Premier League that season and Leicester would not have won the Premier League that season as well. And considering the manner in which he came in, because he came from France, played in the lower divisions of that country, and in, the, in, the, in his very first season, he got to grips with the Premier League, and he never knew the language, had to, know, had to understand a completely new culture. He almost became a revelation that first season with the likes of Vardy, Mares, and all the other players in that team. And won them the Premier League and then took him, took them to Champions League football even though he didn't play that season. He won the Premier League for Chelsea, was their player of the season. And I think even though he's been not as good as he should be in the last few games, I think he is the one for me. Yeah, definitely a good pair of midfielders from both of you for player of the decade. Both won a lot of titles, as was mentioned as well. Uh, we will take a quick break, and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. All right, and we are back. Jamie will lead off with you. Over the last five weeks, things haven't been incredible at Burnley, at least in the attacking third bottom of the league in both shots, shots on target, oh, well, and also goals. Uh, you have the two strikers up top. Usually, they've gotten a lot of praise when things have been going right. Are we going to blame them now that things aren't going as well, or do you think it's more of a creation issue? It's definitely a creation issue for me. Um Goals are always going to be at a premium, I think, for a team like Burnley. We're never going to blow teams away unless the West Ham and play without a goalkeeper. So um, I don't think Chris Wood and Ashley Barnes have become bad players in the last few weeks. I think the service just hasn't been up to the same sort of standard. Um, to score two goals in five games obviously isn't good enough, even though those two goals were enough to win two games. Um but I think creativity has been a problem for a while now. This season, we're particularly relying on Dwight McNeil, who only turned 20 recently, and we're basically funneling all our attacks to him. Everyone we've played knows that we're going to do that, so he's been double marked, sometimes triple marked, and we still expect him to get balls into the box. We don't really have any threat down the right-hand side. It's all down the left and all down, all down to McNeil, really. So I think we have to find a way for the team to be more balanced. Um, Johan Gudmundsson is back and has come off the bench in the last couple of games. I think we need to get him back in the team as quick as possible. He's been injured so much that we haven't really been able to rely on him. Um, but if he can stay fit, I think that would give us a lot more balance having attacking wingers on both sides. Suddenly would be less predictable in our play and hopefully create more chances for Wooden Barnes. I think both strikers are probably having a bit of a difficult spell at the minute, but it is a creativity thing for me because I think if you're a striker and you are starved of service, you only get maybe one chance in a game. It's difficult to just take every chance that comes your way. Strikers playing for a club like Burnley, they're not going to be that prolific. Otherwise, they'd be playing for a better team. So... Woods missed some chances recently. Barnes has probably gone off the boil more. I think if you were going to drop one of the two, you'd drop Barnes. Um, but I think it's certainly been a lack of creativity. The way the team is set up is quite defensive at the moment. So I think it's get Gunmanson into the team, try and push on a bit more, and then hopefully the goals will come again for Wooden Barnes. Gotcha. Well, maybe things will turn around for you then. Uh, we also are heading into January, obviously. And I was just wondering if you think Burnley will make any moves to just kind of further solidify their place in the table or or if you think you'll just kind of try to skirt by on what you have. It doesn't sound like it from what people are saying. Um, we have this phrase that's dated back a few years to every sort of January window seems to get pulled out that it's just too difficult to do deals despite the fact every other club seems to be able to do it. It's too difficult for us to do deals in January for some reason. We just can't do it. Um, and people like to call it Operation Manage Expectations. So a few weeks before the window opens, you'll have Dash in the media saying, 
yeah, it's very difficult to make signings in January, saying these kind of things just to make fans realise that we're probably not going to sign anyone. Um, but I think there's obvious weaknesses in the squad that need to be addressed, whether it's now, whether it's in the summer. We have to make signings at fullback on either side. I think arguably got the worst set of fullbacks in the league. We're playing Phil Bardsley, who wasn't good enough for the Premier League five years ago, probably. He still starts for us. Um, Charlie Taylor improved a lot last season, but the goal that we gave away against Man United, the first one, it's just absolutely terrible defending from Taylor. You can't do that in the Premier League. So if I was to sign two players tomorrow, I would sign a right-back and a left-back because I think they're just not really cut out for it. Um, we're light in central midfield as well not sure what they're going to do with Danny Drinkwater I was talking about staying for the whole season but he's just not played he had that incident where he got beaten up outside a nightclub and that put him out for a few weeks I'm not sure there's any trust in him from Dash he's basically played one game where there was nobody else um, and it's difficult for him to get into a midfield that is quite set so I can imagine him going back to Chelsea during January and then we have to sign someone else's cover because we don't have any other specialist central midfielders, really. So there should be money to spend. We didn't really spend much in the summer. There's no reason why there wouldn't be cash available. Uh, but there seems to be a scouting issue at the club. They don't seem to be able to identify players within our price range that we can realistically sign. So... Until the scouting gets sorted out, and they've been talking about doing this for years, um, and we signed, brought in a director of football for the first time and still targeting the same sort of profile players, so I don't really understand what difference he's made. But from everything that's been said from the chairman, from Daesh in the media, it just doesn't sound like we're going to be very active, which is disappointing because I think if you look at the team that we're putting out, it's quite obvious that there's two players in the team either fullback needs to be replaced. We need more quality in central midfield. Well, good luck with that. As you say, not typically that active in the January window, but I certainly think it would help as uh, do you, especially on those uh, <laughs> defensive wings, as you say. Uh, cost coming to you now, a bit of transfer news uh, that didn't go United's way. Uh, is Holland assigned for Dortmund? Uh, you did get goals from both of your forwards yesterday. I'm sure much to Jamie Chagrin. Uh, how big of a miss do you consider losing out on Holland? And do you think you have enough talent at the club up top to, you know, not need to address it in January? I think missing out on Holland is a huge thing for United because we usually struggle against teams that keep a low block, and having a big target, target man is key to making sure that we score goals against teams like how we lost against Newcastle and West Ham and even Watford. I think if we had a player like Erling Haaland in there, we probably could have won those games or at least we could have got a point from those games. And I think we don't really have a player like that in the current side. We couldn't sign Mario Mandzukic from Juventus before he went to Alduhail in Qatar. And it's going to be a huge, huge miss. And even though Mason Greenwood has stepped up to the plate, he's not really that tall center forward who can be that target man and the and the and, and the player who can just stand up front and make spaces for the attacking midfielders and the wingers and 
I think one more area apart from that is the central midfield because uh, as we usually lack creativity in the midfield and again, it comes back to how we struggle to break down low blocks, team organize themselves against uh, against us, playing, forcing us to play in front of them and we can never break them down, especially without Paul Pogba. And as I previously pointed out, I don't think Pogba's consistent enough to do that job regularly and on a regular basis. We have been linked with guys like James Madison, who I don't think is going to move in January. We've been linked with John McGinn, who's out till about March or April. That's a big blow for not just Villa, but for us as well. And we've been linked with Dennis Zakaria from Borussia Mönchengladbach. And I think that's that will be a good move. But it again comes down to whether he's be he's going to be willing to move in January or not. But that central midfield is probably a bigger concern that the, the centre forward position because the lack of service is the main issue more than more than scoring goals. Because if we don't really have service, we can't score goals, uh, and that's been the biggest problem. And I think we really need to push for Dennis Zakaria when January comes in. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Zakaria because he has also been linked to Tottenham as well as a host of other clubs. But I feel yeah. like he still goes underrated uh, as a talent. But just seeing him in the Premier League would be nice. But would obviously prefer him <laughs> at my club. It would obviously be a fantastic signing uh, at the base of Manchester United's midfield without a doubt. Uh, also, we kind of talked about it in the open and you didn't seem particularly optimistic. But you are now just, what, four points off top four, maybe five. Yeah. Um, but you're definitely within touching distance, regardless of what the actual number is. Do you think you have a chance? And, and is that the objective for the rest of the season to just see if you can't stay in that battle? Or, or do you think you'll fall short, as you kind of alluded to in the open? I think we'll be right in the mix. But towards the last, say, seven or eight games season, we'll probably fall off like we did last season because we don't really have the depth or quality to do that even though Rashford is scoring a lot of goals and Martial is back in fine form as well but when the season started off I didn't really expect us to finish fourth uh, or in the top four especially I expected us to finish around that fifth or sixth spot because the business that we did was pretty uh, broken in in some ways like we did did improve our defense but we never cared about our defense about our midfield sorry and that will be the case as the season wears on. Uh, McTominay and Fred have been really, really good as the, as the season has gone by, but that will be one area. And as I just said, the January transfer window will have a huge impact on that. If we, by chance, end up signing someone like James Madison, that'll be a game changer because Andreas Pereira and Jesse Lingard do just about nothing these days. I mean, not just these days. They've probably just done nothing ever since they started first playing, started playing first team football. Even though Pereira was good last night against Burnley, I think he can't really keep that up in what's remaining of the season. And I think that's probably a summary of how things have been last two years. And even though we might just give glimpses of showing that we might just get to the fourth fourth spot because Chelsea uh, are inconsistent sometimes and might just struggle to pick wins on a regular basis. But we are sometimes just as inconsistent as them. 
Yeah, it, very wise of you to bring up the end of last season because that, that could be the same case again where it's, uh, well, probably not Arsenal, but Chelsea, United, and Tottenham have all been inconsistent or struggled through great stretches trying to see who can save their season right there at the end. Um, from there, we will move into Player Watch where at the start of the show, we talked about the players of 2019 on the whole. Now we'll go a bit more club specific. Who has been your club's best player in 2019? I feel bad for this because anyone who listens to the show when I'm on is probably sick of me talking about Dwight Neal. <laughs> but I was trying to think of who else I could talk about this because I bore myself talking about Dwight Neal. Honestly, I do. But I don't think there's any doubt that he's been our standout player of the year. So I've got no choice. I want to talk about Dwight Neal again. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> I think... We expect so much of him. Like I said, oh, it's so easy to forget that he's only just turned 20. He only got into the team, really, this time last year. He's done a full year of Premier League football now. Split across back end of last season, start of this season, obviously. And his numbers are, are superb for a teenager. Let's count him up today. I think it's nine assists and three goals in about 39 games over the year. Now, that would be a pretty good return for a, an established player in the Premier League, right? If you got that out of your first-choice winger that you play good money for in a sort of mid-table average team that don't score a lot of goals, you'd probably be quite satisfied with that. So to get those numbers out of someone who's 19 for the vast majority of the year, he's just turned 20. I think it's incredible, really. People talk about all the young talents in the Premier League and they talk about people like Hudson and Doyle who've got these big reputations, but He's achieved nothing. He's got in the England team on the back of nothing. A player like Dwight McNeil has been doing it every week in the Premier League since he got in the team. He's so consistent. Um, his form has dipped a little bit of late, but I think it's partly the malaise in the team. The over-reliance over on him, I don't think he's fair. Um, and he could score more goals. He seems to be trying to be more direct pick up the ball in more central areas rather than just playing on the wing all the time. But I think his potential is really big. Um, there was a story in some of the papers recently that if Palace sold Zaha for 75 million, 80 million, whatever they think they can get for him, that they would go after Dwight McNeil as a replacement. And this story in the paper said that they were going to offer 20 million pounds for Dwight McNeil. I was like... Really? <laughs> Do you want the rest of his body there or are you just getting his right leg that he doesn't really ever use? 20 million for one of the most consistent young players in the Premier League. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Um, so despite the fact that I run this one-man bandwagon and talk about him as often I'm as possible, I'm on there with you, bud. Like, don't worry. <laughs> it still seems like he's really underrated among people who watch the Premier League. I don't know if it's because he's not very flashy or just because of the club that he plays for, but... Yeah, I don't. I genuinely don't think people get how good Dwight McNeil already is. And if he can add the extra things to his game, like a bit more trickery maybe, so he can beat a man, he's not the quickest, so I think he needs skill as well as just crossing very consistently if he scores a few more goals. And I think the sky's the limit really for Dwight McNeil, so I just hope that we get the chance to see him for a lot longer because there's absolutely no chance he's going to Palace for £20 million. Yeah, that would certainly be a bit below what his actual worth is, for sure. Uh, Cause at Manchester United, who is your player of the year for 2019? I think it's one of Scott McTominay or Marcus Rashford. But I think I'll 
tip myself in favor of Rashford because of how he keeps going despite getting so much abuse just about every week on a consistent basis. There is constant criticism about him that he's very wasteful in putting chances away and not being decisive enough in the final third. But it's always him who steps up to deliver time and time again, be it in the big games this season or last season or in that Champions League uh, round 16 game against PSG. It's always him, despite all the views that he takes, and he always does well. Even though he does miss some chances, it's always him. And one thing that he seems to benefit from is that he's finally found his position this season because under Jose Mourinho and also sometimes under Louis van Gaal, he was often played as a striker and on the right wing in the next game and then on the left in the next game. But under Ole, he's sort of just found his position. He's nailed down his spot on the team and that's on the left wing in the 4-3-3 formation or the 4-2-3-1 formation. And he's just that inside forward who loves to get on the ball and do and just take defenders on, beat them, create and score. And I think that's one huge thing that he's benefited from because Oli is one manager who's given him all, all the freedom in the world to do whatever he wants on the pitch. And that's one big reason why he gets often abused a lot. Because as soon as he gets the ball, he either takes defenders on or he takes a shot on. And it's it hardly comes off because I mean, by hardly, I mean, he is very, very wasteful sometimes and it frustrates me as well. But it's just that he has been given the freedom to do that a lot like it was for Cristiano Ronaldo under Sir Alex Ferguson. I'm not saying Ronaldo is Ronaldo, uh, Rashford is Ronaldo, but the situation is very much similar to the freedom that Sir Alex gave to Ronaldo when he came on as a teenager in the early 20s. And under Jose, he was pretty much chained. He used to play a lot deeper, either on the left or on the right. He often was a wing back and was never allowed to completely, say, express himself and take defenders on, beat them and create or score. But under Ole, he's found his position. He's playing probably the best season of his life this season, the best year of his life, in fact. And if we score a goal, if we uh, score a goal, he always has some something to do with it. He's either the one who started the attack off or, or the assister or the, or, the, or the goal scorer. And it's just that he just needs the ball at his feet to do the work, just like Ronaldo wanted early on in his time at United. And I think the biggest thing is that he's just grown in stature over the last 12 months because before Solskjaer came in, Josie was struggling to get the best of Rashford and he's just sort of come of age. Yeah, an excellent shout for sure. And we will wrap up with match previews. Of course, matches next coming on New Year's Day. Uh, we'll start with you, Jamie. Burnley versus Aston Villa. You already mentioned this is a big one uh, to start the year. Yeah, it's really important. Because obviously, we've struggled a little bit recently. Um, Dash is one of the managers who will always try and look on the positives. He'll say, like, it's two wins in four. Uh, but it's two goals scored in five and five defeats in seven or whatever it is on the other side so you can look at it one or two ways um but yeah i think villa at home is the sort of game that typically will get the job done um if you look at dash's record of managing burnley in the premier league when we face the teams that below us in the league we inevitably get the points that we need um 
Villa are obviously struggling at the minute to lose 3 0 at 10 man Watford. I think is an achievement of sorts. Um, like we've talked about earlier, John McGinn being out is massive for them. He's probably their best player. So, yeah, I think it's a, a very important game. I'm fairly confident at the moment that we will win it. It'll probably be quite an ugly game. We won a couple 1 0 recently. It wouldn't surprise me if that was a scoreline again. Um, there's the Tom Heaton fact to, cons- to consider. He was our captain for so long. I think most people think that he's doing a pretty good job in goal for Villa, despite the fact they've conceded so many goals. So it'd be good to see him back at the turf. I'm sure he'll get an amazing reception, but hopefully he has a bad game and throws at least one in his own net. I think it's a massive game for us. The gap's six points at the minute. So obviously if Villa win, we're probably right back down in that relegation battle. Whereas if we win them nine points clear and it looks like we find there's a bit of a meltdown. After the last couple of games, performance has been bad, results have been bad, people are getting a bit itchy about it. But yeah, I think these these sort of games, we inevitably get the job done. So I'd be surprised if we don't do that. All right, and we will wrap up with you, Cause. Uh, you're going to be traveling to face Arsenal, who had the lead. It looked like they were going to get their first win uh, in the post-Emery era under Mikel Arteta. Threw it away in the last 10 minutes to Chelsea. Does that make you optimistic seeing those final minutes and that they're still error prone? Or are you a little more leery having seen the first 80 or so? Well, these days I'm pretty encouraged whenever we come up against top six sides, even though Arsenal are currently 12th in the table. But I think it'd be a lot like the Man City game because I'm not saying Arsenal are as good as Man City, they're pretty far off. But it's Arsenal have never really had problems going forward, just like City, even though it's not as good as uh, the Man City attack. But they've always had problems with the back like Man City had this season. And since it's away from home, we'll probably not have the pressure of keeping the ball and passing around with it. And Arsenal are not a side who will sit back in a low block and play like what Watford did against us and beat us 2-0. They'll get on the ball and try to do try to attack as much as they can because that's what that's the sort of promise that Ateta has brought to the plate. And we, we saw that against Bournemouth and Chelsea. And the pressure will be on Arsenal to succeed, even though they've got a horrible backline and a pretty disappointing defense. And I've seen a lot of their games this season as and I see their two centre backs always backing off from quick players, David Luiz and Socrates, they're pretty scared of pace because they are not getting or getting younger by each passing day. They know they can't take on quick players, they just sort of back off. And we've got about three very quick players, They're probably three of the most quickest players in the Premier League. We've got three of those and I think it will be the goals we're going to score be a lot like the goals we scored against City and I think it'll be another 2-1. Gotcha. Well, it should certainly be an interesting one for the teams battling around that top area. Although, as you mentioned, and I will go out of my way to mention this, Arsenal not currently in that group. Um, We are out of time, but just wanted to mention that as we record, David Moyes has just been rehired by West Ham. Any initial thoughts? I like it. I mean, like I said earlier in the show, like, People seem to have forgotten that he kept them up before. He did a really good job there. If West Ham could have their time again, they'd persuade him to stay and not hire Manuel Pellegrini. So, 
yeah, I think Moises obviously did a bad job at United. He wasn't ready for that job. Obviously, suddenly got relegated under his watch. Those things don't look good. But he has done good work in the Premier League. He was amazing for Everton. He did good work at West Ham. It's not a very progressive, forward-thinking appointment, but they need to stay in the Premier League. And David Moyes is someone who probably can do that for them. So, yeah, West Ham fans probably aren't buzzing about it, but I think they'll stay up and Moyes will be fine for them. I don't understand why everyone thinks that he's terrible when he's, his record overall is pretty good. I agree with Jamie because I think West Ham just need to stay out of the relegation zone this season and David Moyes is just a manager who will bring that safe pair of fans to the plate. And even though I think the biggest problem for West Ham has been that they're failing to get the most out of their best players and Moyes is just a sort of manager who gets the basics right, like Nigel Pearson does for Watford. And I think that's the biggest positive for them as much as West Ham fans can go on cringing about it. I think that's where they currently lie. If Manuel Pellegrini has stayed there, he probably would not have taken them out of the relegation zone. And that should be their minimum demand this season. I think that should be their maximum demand this season. And Moyes has shown that he can overform on that regard. All right. Well, thanks for the bonus content, guys, with that coming across the wire <laughs> as we tried to wrap up. But that will, of course, do it for us today. So if you'd like to tell the folks where they could find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to say that I don't just talk about Dwight McNeil on Twitter, but, but... most of my things probably are about Dwight McNeil. So if you're really desperate for more Dwight McNeil content, you can follow me on Twitter at Jamie Smith Sport, but I, I wouldn't recommend it, to be honest. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Ponder17, and I just talk about European football, not just United. I just prefer to keep mum on United stuff because so that I just don't get bashed up about United stuff. So I just keep away from it. Just talk about other leagues. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Twitter at Kevroff. Of course, the Twitter for this show, EPL Roundtable, where you can also find our championship show as well. Thanks again to you guys for coming on today. It was a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.